Before we get into the fourth episode, I want to talk a little bit about why I started this podcast as an occupational therapy student and a practitioner who was working in different institutions. I never really felt occupation, different frameworks and models really resonate with my life and my experiences. And there felt like there was a disconnect in practice um, with the occupational therapy knowledge and really not enough emphasis on providing culturally safe and relevant care. The episode that we're going to get into, you'll see that my guest is remaining anonymous for his own safety. And that's something that a lot of us take for granted. People of color are often persecuted, attacked, um, and threatened for being honest, being honest about their real life situations and experiences, for being honest about injustices that they've experienced and they've seen. As you listen to the episode, I hope you have an appreciation for the vulnerability and honesty that my guest has shared with us in the hopes of making you a better practitioner, a better human being. Welcome to the fourth episode of the South Asian Occupational Therapy Experience. Today, we're going to explore the perspective of children of immigrants. So I am a South Asian occupational therapist. I'm based in the UK. Um, My family descends from India and Pakistan. I moved here about 50 years ago. Um, I qualified uh, six and a bit years ago. And I'm specializing in mental health. Um, My pronouns are he, him, and his. Thank you and welcome. I'm Sheila. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a first-generation American. My parents immigrated from India almost 60 years ago. I was born and raised in San Francisco, and I currently have a private practice in mental health and wellness. So, Before we start talking about um, children of immigrants, I wanted to just give a little bit of explanation of how we describe our immigration status. So first-generation immigrant is typically what we call the first to immigrate to a new country. So you would have been born outside of the country that you're living in. First-generation citizens are native-born citizens. So typically, it would be your parents that immigrated to this new country. And you could also be considered a first-generation citizen if you immigrated at a very young age. And then there's 1.5 generation. Um, So if you immigrated before or during your early teen years. So let's just get right into how is your daily life impacted by being the child of immigrant parents? Um, I think first and foremost, people see my color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they always, and I've had this both in my professional work um, with fellow colleagues and with OTs and with patients, always literally appear to simplify their language. Yeah. As if that I don't understand that. Um, I have also been, uh, you know, being first generation, there's the pressures that you have 
you have to succeed. You have to achieve the best. You have to do what you can because your family um, fought tooth and nail to get to make sure that their children were born in a safe country where they would have all the opportunities that they didn't. And so you're constantly, your life is all about study and work hard and learn all the skills and work that you require. And as an OT, those are very meaningful occupations and meaningful goals. But as a human, sometimes those pressures can be a bit much. And often we are passionate about that as South Asians. We see that as really passion driven. But then one thing that, you know, a lot of my um, fellow Caucasian colleagues and that see is you're a know-it-all or you're a geek or you you know you, you, that's all you want to aspire to um which isn't the case and it does leave you quite excluded because there's things that you don't join in on because you prioritize that exam you have the next day or that assignment that you want to check over that one last time before clicking submit to make sure there's no errors um but also there's the flip side of it that I feel quite lucky that I'm here um having seen how my cousins and that grow up that weren't so lucky to grow up here and at the same time it's quite confusing as well because you want to um have your own culture but also fit into the culture that you've grown up in but then there's the issue of how you're judged for having your own culture, the comments that are made to you. So, you know, uh, a very common term that's often used is coconut. You're yeah. white, white on the inside, but brown on the outside. Uh, uh, you know, I, I get that quite a lot. I also get quite a lot that, oh no, you know, you're... Um, you, you you eat curry and stuff, so you're Indian with your food, but where you eat fish and chips with us, you're white. Right. Uh, or that, you know, you're white when you want to be, but you're Asian when you want to be, when it'll suit you. Um, so it's, it's quite funny, um, some of the things that people actually view you having a different skin colour and different ethnicity as a positive, whereas you've grown up seeing it this is a really bad thing because nobody will accept me and nobody does accept me. Um, and it was very, it's very hard for you to be accepted. So it's almost like you have to form a completely different identity um, to be around people that are Caucasian or when you're around people that are Asian, you can't really truly be yourself because they see you as, oh, the kid that became westernized if that makes sense yeah yeah i mean you you've touched on i think all the all the points that that i really want to to get into today and you know one of the first things you mentioned is the immense pressures that we have um, as children growing up and i think one of the biggest differences to recognize with um, being the child of immigrants is 
our parents didn't have, and some of our parents still don't have anything to fall back on, right? They left everything behind, left everyone behind, came to this new country for a better life for their families, for us. And they had to succeed, right? Because they couldn't go back to their country for various reasons. Sometimes it's just shame, right? It's it's not um, even if they're escaping anything, um, but they can't go back to their country. They can't ask for handouts. Um, they don't have anybody here to support them if anything were to go wrong. Um, and I, I think a lot of that pressure ends up falling on us. Um, something that you mentioned to me before we started recording um, was that you are the first to have attended university, the first to have been able to um, buy your own home. And I wanted to see if you wanted to speak to some of those, um, you know, there are definitely successes, but there are pressures to get to that, to that point. Oh, absolutely. And I think, so like the first to attend university and things like that, you know, um, I grew up in quite an impoverished home. Um, you know, my family worked. Uh, I had a large family. Being the number five son of the eldest son in that family, um, we my mum was the eldest daughter-in-law. She had to look after her nieces and nephews so that, the you know, that's how it, the hierarchy in the nation family works. And the eldest daughter-in-law looks after all the children, even if they're not her own. Um, and so I, you know, my first reasons for studying so hard was because, oh, I need to make something of myself. But then as I grew older, it was like, I need to do really well so I can get a good paying job so I can escape from all of this. Mm -hmm. So I can have a life that's about me. That isn't about, oh, I need to do this to help all of them. Um, I need to do it for me. Um, and that pressure that you end up putting on yourself, it's twofold because you want to do it for yourself, but you also want to do it to make your family proud. And for them, you know, you mentioned something about ashamed and that's a big thing. You know, this honor, we talk about honor based violence, but we don't talk about honor based pressures. Right. And I think one of the biggest things on, um, uh, like you'll know yourself on, um, South Asian children is the whole pressure of uh, you need to uphold the family honour. Right. You need to do this, that and the other to make sure that the family honour is kept up and that that image that's portrayed in society. We've worked hard for society to even allow us to live among them here in Britain. So you need to make sure that you don't do anything to dishonor that. Otherwise, they might eject us. And part of that doesn't just come from this concept of honor. It also comes from the whole concept of, you know, the old views of immigration, that if you did anything wrong, you would risk losing your status of British citizen or living here. Um, even, you know, so you have to do really well. You have to contribute to society, um, not just because you're part of that society but so that you don't actually end up losing that privilege almost to be living here rather than actually that right to live here yeah um so yeah for me uh, that those were some of those pressures and I think it is a lot to do with the fact that you know when then when I've achieved that I've succeeded I've uh, 
I remember going and when I got, uh, I was really sick during my final college exams. And um, so that's like A-levels. I think in the States, that's probably like, it's not university. So it's um, Hi, probably high school just before you go to university. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I remember I was sick. I did some of my final exams whilst I was really sick. And I ended up, uh, I was doing extra A-levels compared to other people because I'd gotten like 100% in all my exams in the previous year. Um, But I remember not doing as well, but still getting really high grades. And I remember coming home and the first question that was asked of me was, what happened to the rest of the grades? Yeah. Um, uh, And my response was, I did these exams while I was sick. because I didn't want to set another year in college. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're sick. Um, and you'll probably know that, you know, when you've been sick, it's if you've got an exam the next day, we'll still stay up and study all night. Right. So that, <laughs> and then when you go into the exam, you just have your hot ginger tea <laughs> yeah. to, to get you through it. You know, so, um one thing that you that you mentioned that really stuck with me is these familial expectations are greater than that. They're societal ex- expectations. Yeah. And if you trace back, especially the both of us, you know, we have family histories of colonization. And so, you know, I'm in the United States. It's a little different. But being in the UK, um, like you said, like being allowed to be in that country, um, we are finally seen as humans. We're finally seen as people who can be part of society. Um, And so it runs so much deeper than just bringing shame to your family, but like really all of your people, who you represent based on your skin color and going back, um, you know, going back to our countries of origin, we we were dehumanized. Um, and now that we're allowed to be part of society, we don't just want to be part of society. We want to show that we more than belong. We, we can do better. We have always been able um, to be equal or better. We just haven't had that opportunity. And so, um, you know, these expectations are, in my, my mind, they're threefold. You've got your family expectations. You've got the general society's expectations, and then you have your own expectations of, um, you know, what what you want from life. Yep. And then there's the, you know, let's just add another expectation on top of that. There's the Western expectation yeah, yeah. of society here that you forsake your Asian culture or your cultural background and not just completely integrate, but you assimilate a white culture and um oh you know I hear this so much well you've moved here you've taken our jobs uh why don't you know all you all your parents moved here and now you have been born and taken our jobs so maybe you should be more like us and I find that really horrific because it's actually quite reflected I was talking to a few OTs that um, in the UK, and some of the things they told us is that they always try to hire somebody that reflects themselves. Mm-hmm. And I was just there. so my view to them in response to them was, well, I get that, but you're white and female, right? I'm Asian and brown. I'm Asian and gay and male, and you're white hetero female. So does that mean that I'm not going to get a job if you are interviewing me, right? Even if I, even if I was more experienced and more knowledgeable 
So it's really interesting that, you know, there is that pressure from Caucasian society to someone Asian. So it's like, it's like you're stuck then in limbo. Where do I belong? Where am I? Which part am I? Is me. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. And and in being in different parts of the world, I think those pressures to assimilate are the same, right? Dressing a certain way, speaking a certain way. Um, But no matter what we do, we are different. The moment somebody sees us, we're already different. We don't have to open our mouth. We don't have to show our degrees. Um, it, it doesn't matter what we have to offer. We automatically don't belong. Um, and unfortunately for us, we don't belong wherever we are, right? If we go back to um, our family's country of origin, um, we're not Indian enough, Pakistani enough. Um, and yep. where we are now, we're, we're not British enough. We're not American enough. We're not Western enough. Absolutely. And yeah, and it's interesting because it's like um, people say, oh, you know, you need to just um, get over the racism thing. Nobody's racist anymore. You know, you're right. here. You're it's illegal. Yeah, yeah, it's illegal to be racist. You should just report it to the police. All right, cool. I'll ring the police, tell them that I've had somebody be racist to me, but the police will tell me, sorry, there's nothing we can do at this time right. because we've got no physical evidence. And I'm just like, the evidence is there, but you know, all it takes is somebody to deny that they've been racist. Mm-hmm. Um, and who who are the white their white friends going to stand up for? You know, um, it's like uh, I've been on trains, I've been spat at, I've had racial slurs thrown at me, um, I've had patients be racist to me um, and homophobic, and I've been told, oh no, you just need to you just need to accept that they that that and then move forward because actually it's the same as when a patient says they don't want to work with a female OT because they feel more comfortable with a male and I was like no that is not the same thing um it is really not the same thing and it's when people equate that to it um my argument then is well isn't that the same as me saying that actually um when somebody talks about violence against females actually there's violence against males as well and detract from that it's exactly the same thing and it's and that doesn't get understood um so it's it's almost like we've got this culture where there is feminism and equality but the feminist the the view of equality and feminism only applies when it's acceptable within the realms of a caucasian society yeah and I mean that that really is it. I think people a lot of people aren't comfortable getting into it, but is it feminism? Is it an intersectional feminism or is it white feminism? And the reality is where you and I live, it's it's white feminism. They um aren't considering black and brown people, um, people that are trans or um, you know, gender non-binary. It really is white feminism when you look at the historical roots and even what's been um what people are fighting for now. Yeah. And um, you know, when when you were talking about what what the term that's used here often in workplaces is culture fit. Um, people aren't going to say, oh, no, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be biased and only hire people that look like me, think like me, talk like me. They call it culture fit here, right? Are you going to fit into the culture of this workplace? And it's like, what is the culture of this workplace? Um, and so 
you know, the hardest things with um, discerning acts of racism and racial discrimination is it's implicit. You know, I'm sure, I don't know if you actually ask that person, what does it mean? Um, But they're not going to give you a straight answer. They'll tell you, of course, we'll hire you, right? But depending on what your name is and how it appears on a resume um, or what they see, um, if it's a face-to-face interview, that is 100% going to impact if you, quote unquote, fit in or not. Absolutely. Um, you know, I was explaining it to one of my friends and they weren't getting it. So I sat down and, ex- and we, when we went to a bar, um, I went up and I was the first one there. And then a few white people came mm-hmm. up and um, the barman ignored me, mm-hmm. served the white people. And then another party came and he served them. Mm-hmm. And I'm still, and I've called out to him. I've signaled him. And then I just walked back to the table without any yeah. drinks or food. Um, and my friend's like, well, where's your drink? And I was like, um, just, this is what's happened. And they're like, oh, he probably didn't see you. Right. And I was like, and then afterwards, when I sat down and explained to my friend, because this is a friend who is really open-minded and will, you know, learn and understand when I explain things to them, that actually that's a micro, that's a racist microaggression. Right. And when I explained to him what had happened, he was like, Right. Okay. So that was racism. So he took me up to the bar and he said to the barman, he's like, look, mate, my friend has been waiting for half an hour for you to serve him. Said you chose to serve other white people over him. You'll serve him now or us and the party of 14 that have a table booked here that we're waiting for. We will be leaving. And that's at least 800 pounds worth of service that you're going to lose out tonight. Do we need people to keep doing that for us? Like, do we, we really need, need people to keep saving, to say, to keep saving us and having to explain what actually happened? Yeah, it gets old. And I'm sorry, but this is a fight that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds yes. of years. Yeah. And it's only 60 years ago that the first black kid was allowed to go to a mixed school in uh, the US was it and it's only 60 years ago that we started removing segregation but it's only a few years ago that actually they were still paying slave owner families reparations for Mm -hmm. freeing the slaves wow if, if there's any example of white saviorness coming in our politics, you know, which is showing strict, structural and systemic racism still in existence, those are just some examples. But then it's like, you know, let's add on top of the fact that I'm South Asian. Let's add the fact that I'm gay. Right. You know, um, I'll never, you know, I know for a fact I'll never fit in anywhere for being gay uh especially you know particularly in the lgbt community um at least there's some south asian communities where they are fine with it you know they're like all right as long as you don't you're not outwardly talking about it or whatever it's fine we don't care that you're gay um or that your partner's white um but in a in a community which you would hope would have accepted you for be you know when they themselves have been for millennia has been discriminated against right um you're not because i know um it's not you know we've had it where me and my husband have gone out to a club and we've been told oh it's not your kind of people's night 
I was like, what do you mean? It's like, it's not a Bhangra night. And if you don't know what that means, like Bhangra is a, a genre of, um, of music. Um, and in the UK, I'm sure it's even more popular. And, you know, they have basically like they see in Bhangra night. So yes, that is, that is very racist. Yeah. So I've had that. And then yeah. I've, you know, then it's like, brilliant. Um, you know, I tried to join an LGBT um group at uni and you know surprise surprise I was the only Asian guy there mm-hmm. all of their nights were built around dressing up and drinking I'm not a heavy drinker I'll enjoy a drink now and again but I wasn't one to go out and get absolutely off my face um and yes they'll say but that's your uni culture but at the same time arranging all the LGBT activities around it isn't going to allow for inclusivity Mm -hmm. or what's the most common phrase? You're so brave and amazing for being Asian and gay and coming, I was like, but I'm not being gay. I am gay. 100% of the time, um, the statistics will show you if it's even being measured that it is black and brown people within the LGBTQ community, uh, community that are having the worst disparities in income and health and healthcare, access to healthcare, things like that. Um, white LGBTQ plus people have better health, better access to healthcare, better treatment than those that um, have the intersectionality of being a person of color. Yeah. I think I think one of the things that people are afraid of talking about it is, uh, afraid of talking about these things is because, so let, let's put it this way, Asian people are afraid of talking about these things mm-hmm. to Caucasian people because the minute we do raise anything, you get arguments of, but, we get racism as well. Mm-hmm. We're white and we get excluded or mm-hmm. we don't see colour mm-hmm. or actually we're open to learning and stuff like that, but just don't call us racist. Um, no, we're not saying that you're racist. What we're saying is that you have white privilege. Right. You you are still not willing to recognise and that you, uh, you know, and you don't recognise that some things you say are racist and when they're pointed out to you, you instantly become defensive. If you don't become defensive and you sit down and ask us, explain to me how that's racist because I'm not understanding this, then of course we'll be happy to explain it to you, but we shouldn't need to explain it more than once. And it's then your duty to go and educate other people. You yeah. know, that's that's something that we we don't have. And that, that's why we can't have those conversations. And right. on the flip side, you know, I've got a lot of white friends that you know, talk to me about racism and we talk about it a lot and we have those socio-political discussions. And, you know, one of the things that they say is that they're afraid of talking, asking those questions because they're afraid of what if they offend somebody. Right. And I was like, I was like, no, you're not going to offend someone. Of course, somebody's going to get passionate about it. And yes, they may get upset about it, but, you know, that's that person's responsibility, their reaction if you're asking about something because you're concerned, but just think about, you know, if I was just put yourself in the other shoes and see how would I feel about that if I was Asian and marginalized. Right. So it's it's like that. And 
we don't talk about it because there are those fears and there is the fact we, we live in a society where actually talking about anything instantly gets you judgment. Right. And I think you, you brought up two really important points. One, um, we don't like to talk about this, but just because you belong to a marginalized group or an oppressed group doesn't mean that you aren't capable of oppressing another group, right? Um, Where me as a brown person and I'm cisgender, heterosexual, I am capable of saying something that is harmful um, to somebody that's in the LGBTQ plus community, even though I, you know, I'm oppressed because of my race, right? And so I, we all do need to um, be inclusive and be thoughtful. But then the other part that you mentioned is this like, this fear of saying something to offend somebody or doing it wrong that's keeping you from even learning, um, from keep, keeping you from even trying, which I think it's worse. You know, I think it's worse to absolutely do nothing, be okay with the status quo than to maybe say something kind of stupid. Absolutely. You know, um, it's like, talk about it. Talk to yeah. your friends about it and say to them, look, this happened. I'm not sure what, you know, is that, was that okay? What, right. what, what, what should have been my response? Um, and I was like, actually, your response should have been like this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like one of my friends, um, they were talking to me about their 10-year-old coming out to them. And she's a hetero straight woman. And she was like, I wasn't too sure how uh, I should have responded. But all I said to them was, I'm not going to treat you any different. You're still my mm-hmm. kid. And I was like, yes, that's great. But you should also have affirmed to them that yes, being gay is an absolutely okay identity. Mm-hmm. And that person was completely fine with it. They were so accepting and open-minded and listening of it. It's having those discussions that open it up. Um, but I mean, like going back to the original point of, you know, race and ethnicity and being part of a marginalized group and experiences I think those experiences you know we're talking about them right now and yourself you know we're seeing it in the media um people will say if it's a black person that's not you know that's getting or an Asian person that's getting shot and whatever oh well why did they confront the person why did they confront the neighbor or why did they uh why did they have the argument with them just comply uh, yeah why didn't they comply and just keep the head down mm-hmm. um okay right uh well that's fine right okay that's fine but then the next minute you see a white person doing exactly the same thing i know they had mental health issues or they were having a really bad day right yeah it's a double standard. We we have to behave a certain way to stay alive. Um, and we are villainized. We're called terrorists. Um, we did something wrong when we're the victims. Um, yeah. Whereas you're humanizing, you know, the white domestic terrorist. Let's, you know, you mentioned something about healthcare access. Mm-hmm. Um we, I, I live in a society where we have social medicine, where it is socially funded and welfare funded. And, um, but then let's look at access, access and the lack of education. As an Eastern person, um, I 
you know, have to use the model of human occupation. Mm. I have to use assessments and tools that I've been told that are to be used, right. which are selected by heterosexual Caucasian individuals higher up within our profession. Um, because they are the best standardized generic generic tools that are applicable to all. No, even though they were not. normed on white people. <laughs> yes. So yeah. let's look at social skills within the moho, being independent, being able to look mm -hmm. after yourself, being not too overly involved with family and friends, and respecting privacy and boundaries. All right, Sheila, you tell me in the South Asian culture, right? <laughs> India or Pakistan, right? What boundaries are there? Yeah, none. <laughs> none. If your mum, if your mum tomorrow broke her arms or whatever, and she needed you to attend to her personal care, you'd be doing it, right? right? And and I do, and you know, like yes, you're, you know, no one gets it. Friends don't get it. Therapists, mental health therapists, don't get it. No one gets it. You drop everything because your family comes before yourself. Absolutely. Um, or your family is. You're in, um, okay, I'm going to Americanize my terminology here. You're in the emergency department and you are anxious and the doctor's talking to you, but your family is answering for you. You would feel absolutely comfortable for them to do that, wouldn't right. you? Because that is how it works in Eastern families. Right. Um, but the minute I know to, or the minute I'm assessing that on the MOHO, mm -hmm. family is over-involved. Mm -hmm restricting the person so you would score poorly on that part of the moho scale moho scale right the model of human occupation screening tool um but yet that's an unfair rating because that's not reflective of your cultural social values and your norms right right so it's like that and and you're being judged uh, for those results i mean you know the the language that that is being used to document isn't neutral language you know no. we think it's neutral language but it's judgmental language <laughs> yep absolutely um and it's interesting um I, even let's look at like you know how depression and that presents in eastern families compared to westernized if you're not cooking or cleaning or things like that it's just like okay well maybe they don't want to they they can't cook or clean um because not every woman in the west cooks or clean mm. right but you and i will know that in the eastern culture well i'd hope most eastern families they teach their kids whether they're boy or girl cooking and cleaning right right also the girls because that's what was a tradition but mm -hmm. that's shifting and it's more both genders are taught you both cook and clean because everybody helps out in the family right um and the minute you're not cooking and cleaning in the eastern culture oh no it's fine it's not really a symptom of depression it's just you know that that's the norm and i'm like no but it's not their social norm Right. So actually, it's a symptom of depression here. Um, the fact that they're attending to their personal care is, you know, because that is part of their faith and religion. Mm -hmm. 
that's you know that doesn't indicate that they're not depressed that indicates that they've still following their faith and religion um so it's it's all these kind of things that you know i sit there and as a clinician i sit in despair when i get a patient that's been seen by caucasian clinician and caucasian clinician and so many symptoms have been dismissed and i'm sat there and i'm like no what what is happening here where's the where's the inclusivity and cultural awareness here and then when you do try and raise it you're seen as disruptive you know um not even just assessments just occupation in general when you think of the otpf um you know, there's the mention of like choice, motivation, and meaning. And it's, you know, I, I often put that in the context of like racism affects it, but really culture as well. You know, there are certain things within our culture that you really don't have a choice. It's not based on your motivation. And sometimes there really is even no meaning. Like that's just obligatory. Um, yeah. You know, kind of going back to those expectations. Um some some things are they're just mandatory. We we have no choice um, but to do them. You know, you mentioned even um, personal hygiene with with religion. Like you, you we have to be clean and pure to um, participate in those rituals. So regardless of how we're feeling emotionally, you 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 just kind of have to do it. And so you know some of the the terms that that are used in mental health are like high functioning, or if they're not doing it, they're not compliant. And it's like, no, that, that, that doesn't apply. Those are, those are judgmental terms. You know, they don't really reflect what's going on in somebody's actual life and, and why that's happening. Yep. Absolutely. So then it does make you question about the inclusivity in healthcare. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not, um, you know, if you look at, who everything was modeled on, especially just standard medicine, it's the white male body, right? All these norms and standards are on the white body um, or, you know, know, uh, white person's occupations. And that really doesn't reflect not just South Asian cultures, um, but really anything that isn't that white Western dominant cultural representation. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I like this, this is a tough one. Cause it's like, okay, how do, <laughs> what's the takeaway for practice? And, you know, there, there's no simple solution to this. I I'd like to hear kind of what your thoughts are on how do we start making, how do we start shifting um, this mindset of, you know, we really, as OTs, regardless of where we're practicing, we have this, like, there's one way to do it. There's one right way to do it. How do we shift away from that? We go back to the very fundamental of occupational therapy practice, which is person-centered holistic care. We go right back to that. We say that, right, so I I detest it when I see therapists call themselves, oh, I'm person-centered. I do meaningful goals for the client because actually what's important is for the patient to be able to wash themselves and eat and drink. Like, but those are just basic goals that you're doing to fit the whole model that you're using. That's mm-hmm. not person-centered care. That's model-centric care, which is the approach of medicine. You know, medicine is all about fit the patient's symptoms to the right diagnosis and give them the drug to treat it. And 
that is not the approach we should be using in OT, which is what we've become, and actually shift right back to person-centered care. So if I asked you a question, Sheila, what is person-centered holistic care? What would you say? Well, you know, as a South Asian um, first-generation American, person to me is more than just myself, right? If I am the patient, um, my, my family is part of this, especially when I think of my parents are elderly. And so I am the one, especially I'm the one speaking for my dad because he has dementia and his language skills are regressing. He's been in the United States for 60 years. English has been his primary language, but now he doesn't understand what his doctors are saying. And they're not they're not taking the time to get a translator. They're not even getting a, taking the time to make sure he understands what they're saying. And so I'm speaking for him. So when my, when somebody is practicing person-centered care with my dad, they have to consider myself, my mom, and anybody else who's in the household or providing care. So just the word person means so much more um, in my culture than it does in others, right? Right. So if we move right back to person-centered holistic care, we are not just looking at the person. We're looking at the environment. We're mm-hmm. looking at what what is meaningful and what they define as an right. occupation, right. right? If we look at um, somebody who is LGBT, coming out is an occupation for that person mm-hmm. because it's something that is meaningful to them. Um, if we look at somebody who is Middle Eastern, Right. So, you know, your mum, your grandma, um, your dad, even and your granddad, when they make tea, they make it on a hob. Right. Mm-hmm. With um, oat, loose tea, um, spices and some herbs. And they will do that. Right. And when you're making chai, you have to bring it right to the boil. So it's about to boil over, but it doesn't quite boil over. Mm-hmm right <laughs> okay so when somebody is assessing uh, I came across this case when I was training mm-hmm. somebody was assessing a patient they said we need to assess this patient um for making a cup of safety of making a cup of tea um patient walked in and saw kettle microwave and mugs and tea bags patient just stood there Right. What am I going to do with this? She just filled the cup with water and drank the water, right? Because yeah. in the Eastern culture, it doesn't matter what you've got there. If you want a drink of water, you just fill whatever you've got there to drink water. Um, the per- patient was marked down as very risky in the kitchen and not able to complete tasks because they lacked cognition of planning, sequencing, and completing tasks. I had to then educate a clinician and I was told off because I wasn't a clinician, I was a student, Mm. right? So interestingly, um, you know, that was an interesting experience for me and it made me realise, okay, I'm in a white person's world right now, training to do something that white people do. I need to be more white and British and not question. The most dangerous things there, you know, you mentioned several um, issues with assessments is that we are 
we are basically calling people dangerous or uh, minimizing their ability to do things based on the Western way, right? Because we think there's one right way to do it. Um, And if you're doing it differently, then it's wrong. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest problem. You know, you're you're talking about the kitchen and I'm I'm thinking just myself, I use my hands for almost everything. Um, you know, I'm, I'm turning, <laughs> I'm turning hot, hot tortillas around. Um, and you know, I, I can't feel it in my fingertips cause I've been doing it since I was a child. That's probably dangerous. Cause I should be using a utensil, but that's how we cook, right? We cook yeah. over an open flame. Um, we touch things that are hot. We don't use too many utensils. Um, and that's how we do it. It might not be considered safe in the Western culture, but that's our culture. That's how we do it. Absolutely. And eating with our hands as well. We eat with our hands, you know? Um, It's like ridiculous um, that, you know, you're then, you're judged. You're judged for eating with your hands. And it's like, that's not hygienic, blah, 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 etc. You're not eating right. And I was like, okay, it may not be hygienic because we have a culture, you know, in your view, but, you know, before we go and eat, we have a whole ritual of washing our hands, making sure that we don't touch anything except for the implements that we are serving food out of or the plates and things like that. And there's a whole ritual of where we, you know, lay the mat down on the floor so that our food isn't coming in contact with the floor. Right. And we sit, you know, all of these rituals and stuff right. that we have as part of dinner. Like, you, if you think back to when you were a kid, remember, like, it would take a good half an hour to get stuff ready for dinner to be <laughs> Right. You know? I, I remember that. I remember all of that. And I remember then the food being brought in and it would be my mum uh, or whoever's been cooking, bringing it in and putting it in the middle because then it's for you know and then everybody was told you need to go wash your hands and everything and come and take um plates and stuff and go sit down ready for eating it's like we've forgotten that actually it's not you know that person-centered care it's what that person is telling you their life like rather than assuming you know that actually a bed bath is sufficient for somebody who's middle eastern it isn't because actually a bed bath does not leave me feeling clean. I remember being, uh, I remember I had fractured, I had a micro fracture on my foot um, a few weeks ago. Um, and my husband was just like, it's all right, just, you know, you can't stand in the shower and stuff for too long. So why don't you just have a wash at the sink? And I was like, no, I don't feel clean and I don't feel able to do anything throughout the day until I'm clean. And the last episode um, of this podcast, we talked about religion. And so there's cultural component, but there's a religious component. I mean, if you're not able to properly clean yourself, you can't even participate in those religious occupations um, because there are rules. You have to be clean. It's yeah. It, and, you know, I think it, it goes beyond just South Asian culture. If, if there's something you've been doing for decades of your life, 
you want to be doing, <laughs> you want to be doing that again. And so, um, you know, any of those accommodations, um, that you're making really have to include the person. It's not what you, the OT things thinks, um, is the best way to make the modification. It's, it's really what's, what's important to the other person. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, that's when it comes down to the day-to-day impacts of mm-hmm. being first generation here born, um, from my ancestors and actually growing up here and the cultural impacts it doesn't just impact me on those wider areas where I experience racism and I experience exclusion but it affects me when it comes to my healthcare, when it comes to my well-being when it comes to all of these things and I think it's brilliant that like my husband understands now that actually Mm -hmm. how important it is for me to have a wash you know I had uh, really bad side effects after I had my first um, COVID vaccine and I you know I couldn't I was so dizzy for a mm-hmm. few days um, you know but my husband knew how important it was for me to feel clean so he was supporting me to stand I get over the shower and have a shower and things like that because he knew that that would give me that slight bit more quality of life mm-hmm. whilst I was so sick mm-hmm. um and something that seems as meaningless as a shower can have way more meaning than you recognize. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it is that whole concept of actually cleanliness helps you mm-hmm. clear your mind as well. Mm-hmm. And it's without having that cleanliness, like how are you able to then commune with other people and commune with God or commune with yourself? because you're not clean you're not clean-minded right you know yeah it's way deeper than just a shower absolutely so yeah it affects me on an absolutely day-to-day basis and like even things like you know um dishes washing dishes um I don't put my dishes into soak in a sink and then wash them and then just rinse them off rinse the I don't do that I can't just scrub them in a sink of water and then put them out to dry. Um, they need to be scrubbed and rinsed and put to dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, um, and air dried because it's more hygienic because using a cloth to dry dishes, you're getting germs on that cloth and then putting them back onto what you've just washed. Um, but like um, my, some of my friends think it's weird that you know when I have dinner parties and they come over and I made food and then I wash the afterwards I'm washing the plate straight away because it's not in my culture to leave plates there and let the food dry and get hard and just put them in smoke and it's I need to scrub the plate straight away clean them and put them to air dry um Again, it comes down to that whole cultural value and the meaning of that behind that is that actually everything is clean and all of, you know, my environment is clean and clear. So it means that I can focus and I can enjoy my interactions with my friends and relax. Right. I, I This is a side note. I will say as an adult, um, I got a dishwasher <laughs> and I like it. It definitely, it was a transition in, you know, 
it, I think many Asian cultures, we aren't used to using dishwashers. It feels wasteful. Um, and, you know, there's just the traditions of hand washing and it has just changed my life. You know, I haven't had anyone over in over a year, but I'm ready to have them over and use that dishwasher again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we are currently getting our kitchen redone and I'm, <laughs> I'm getting a dishwasher. Yeah. Um, but I've already said to my other half, but if the dishes don't come out sparkling. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I still back. kind of wash my dishes before I put it in the dishwasher because I'm so used to washing my dishes a certain way by hand. Yep, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so this is this is a big question. You have learned to maintain two cultures, right? So you are, um, you know, first generation UK citizen. So you've had to assimilate, um, learn the language, learn how to dress, learn how to act um, to be, for the most part, accepted by British society. And you have um, your South Asian culture that you've been able to maintain, including language and customs. Um, And, you know, you clearly bring that into practice with you. And unfortunately, the examples of you advocating for, um, you know, clients from different backgrounds hasn't been the best. But, you know, to me, it seems simple. If you're able to maintain two cultures um, and you're that helps you provide better patient um, centered or client centered care. How are people that don't have this experience? If you are brought up with just one background and it's hard to understand it because you don't have that lived experience, you know, how can that translate? How can um, how can people um, be more broad minded um, maybe even put some of those um, normed assessments to the side um, and really provide that true um, patient-centered care that takes culture into account, that takes more than just, you know, I think of it really as a, as a binary, you know, we're so used to things just being this way or not. So, you know, my answer before, of we need to go right back to the basics of person-centered holistic care. The bread and butter of any occupational therapist is activity analysis. Mm -hmm. Before we had these models and things that we would sit there and complete an activity analysis, right? Yeah. When you're studying to be an occupational therapist, the first tasks that they teach you is about activity analysis and how to, you know, you have the psychological, the cognitive, the social, the cultural, the environmental the physical, the activity itself, the meaning. You have all of these factors amongst others to consider, right? When you do an activity analysis. If you want to be more diverse and aware, um, you know, I have a friend who lives in England. She's an occupational therapist. She's Irish, but she spent a year going to lots of different shops eastern and all of that to learn about the different cultures Mm. and to learn about how we shop the things that we do um she also got involved in the kitchen with me to see how we cook different things 
how we deal with the fact that we're crying and when we're chopping so many onions <laughs> yeah. to make a masala and how we in between chopping different veg and stuff we're washing our hands constantly right. because that's how we avoid getting chilly in our eyes right that's how we don't wash our hands when we've kneaded the dough for the chapatis and we roll the chapatis out and that flour that sticks to our fingertips acts as a barrier from stopping our fingertips from getting those third degree burns. Mm-hmm. Um, she learned all of that. If somebody who is in her late 30s, so a mature OT, uh, I hope she won't kill me if she hears this, <laughs> um, is willing to learn that, what's to stop any other OT to go out and observe other cultures or ask other cultures to learn from it when you are learning to be an OT you don't know about you know models or practice or activity analysis or anything like that you learn it from them from the OT so if we viewed those tools as the culture within OT what is to stop us from then going and learning the culture and values and skills of others ethnicities and backgrounds I'm, you know, I grew up, I grew up learning six Eastern languages in my brain. I think in Punjabi, um, I'm translating it to English Mm -hmm. right now in my head. You know, I had a linguist who basically looked, uh, who assessed me and was like, you, you have like some, like, it's like a 0.36 second delay Mm -hmm. of translation from Punjabi to English. Um, because up until the age of six, I was speaking Eastern languages. Right. Um, but then when I was a kid, I was told I'm delayed development because I wasn't speaking mm-hmm. until six, seven years of age because I didn't, I, I didn't know how to respond in English to some people. Yeah. yeah. So you, you and I are in the same boat. I actually, I spoke. Um, Bangla and Urdu before I spoke English. So I didn't learn English until I started school, even though my parents spoke English, Um, you know, coming from India, you learn English in school. But um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm going a little off topic, but that's a huge deal. You're telling parents that their children are developmentally delayed because they actually have too much language skills. Um, And, you know, you're a polyglot now, right? Yeah. And I'm sure your language is likely um well not likely is more advanced than than most of the people that you're working with uh practitioners yeah and the interesting thing here is that when we then look at it right back to the original question how can caucasian ot's or ot's not of that culture learn to then be able to identify with other cultures Mm -hmm. What about all those international OTs and international nurses that come to the UK and learn to assimilate and identify to the Caucasian culture here? They do it. They do it by observing. They do it by asking questions. They do it by listening. And they do it by asking those questions. What's your routine like? What do you enjoy doing? What is important to you? How do you wash? How do you get dressed? Yeah, I I think it boils down to 
being humble and recognizing that there isn't one way, there isn't even a right way, right? It's the individual's way of doing it or the community's way of doing it. Absolutely. Um, You know, it's like, um, it's like um, my husband won't make a curry, um, you know, because he knows that if he makes a curry, even though he's trying to be nice and do something that he knows would be meaningful for me in that meal, he knows that actually I won't enjoy it as much <laughs> because he, he, you know, one of the skills that, you know, you learn when you're cooking Indian food is how to layer flavors, mm-hmm. how to layer spices and how to get the most out. You know, why do you not fry certain spices first? And why do you steam certain spices? All of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, skills that take years to learn. Um, but he learns and he has been learning. And, you know, he's he's now able to assist me when I'm making chapatis or dosas and things like that, you know, because he knows what to do with those there and what colour does it need to go before the chapati's done. So when we're talking it right back to actually being humble and willing to learn, mm-hmm. um, he taught me how to make a shepherd's pie, you know. And not have um, it taste like south asian food yeah because yeah, yeah. <laughs> we um, tend to do that too sometimes yeah exactly <laughs> that's our palate we'll add, we'll add a bit of garam masala to yeah. it's a bit bland or <laughs> we need a little spice so let's just add some chili powder um <laughs> but you know it's like that um he told me how to make welsh cakes mm-hmm. you know but my welsh cakes aren't as good as his because it's something he's learned from a childhood and yes they're not as good, but they are improving because I will continuously try, try, try again and will ask questions and will want to learn. And that's all that needs to happen, that willingness, what you just said, that willingness and acceptance that actually, yeah, as an OT, even I'm limited in certain areas. And as a, as a non-white OT, you know, there are things that I won't understand about um, Caucasian patients. And I will ask them those questions and ask them to explain it to me. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a saying that my grandma used to say, sometimes the best teacher is yourself. And that is yourself being the person who asks the questions. Yeah. And, you know, even just outside of occupational therapy, you know, food is like, my heart is in food and food is in my heart. Um, (laughs) So, you know, thinking about food or just culture in general, it, it enriches life even more. If you are aware of different ways to do things, um, you know, again, going back to food, um, you know, eating, eating differently, right? We eat with our hands. So, the the sensations increase right um it's it's a whole experience eating food it's not just um it's not just for nourishment um and so you know i think your life expands your view on life the the possibilities 
um, are really limitless when you're willing to have that open mind and be curious and learn. It is just about that, being that curious Mm -hmm. to learn. Like food is so important here. So I think it is a massive part of the Eastern culture as well. Because, you know, whether it's Diwali or Eid or Christmas or whatever in India or Pakistan, you have a massive feast. And if you see that somebody's house's cook fires aren't lit that day, you'll notice the community will go around with lots of food to that person's house, won't they? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's more than it's more than food. It it's it is community. It is a communal experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so again, it's like that whole thing of cultural view that mm-hmm. you know, I'm always open minded with when when I'm when I'm working with somebody with depression. I will ask them, when's the last time you really enjoyed your meal? Like really sat down. What was the last thing you really sat down and enjoyed and it made you feel real joy? And when they tell me, I'd be like, great. So why don't we try and make that in our next kitchen session? That's a, that's a beautiful question to ask. And, you know, hopefully it, it translates, but me just hearing that makes me think of how valued the person you're working with feels, right? How seen mm-hmm. and heard they feel, which is a very different experience than most healthcare providers. So that little bit of extra time to get to know who you're working with means more trust, better rapport, um, you know, better outcomes. Absolutely. And when we're defining outcomes, I think we need to define it in that cultural context. Yeah. So for somebody, it may not be about, you know, it may be about, yeah, I really enjoyed this meal because it was quick to prepare. Um, but for somebody else, it may be, I, you know, uh, for me, uh, it would be, I really enjoyed a biryani because it takes um over a day of preparation I have to cook the different curries the day before and then I cook the biryani the next day and it's the labor and effort and the love that I take in preparing it that makes it that much more enjoyable and meaningful to me Right. And yes, I appreciate you pointing that out. Outcomes doesn't necessarily mean they were able to do X, Y, and Z independently and they've met their goals. An outcome for an individual can mean more meaning in their life. And to me, that's more powerful, especially in, you know, South Asian culture. You know, we don't really care about putting our socks on by ourselves um, (laughs) independently. Mm -hmm. That's not as important as, um, you know, living your life with your family in your community and doing the things that are meaningful to you. Absolutely. Yeah. So are there any last things that um, you want to add or, or bring up? So I think one thing I just wanted to briefly talk about is being a gay OT and mm-hmm. I suppose coming out, um, you know, for me, it wasn't a positive experience coming out to my family um you know I don't have any contact with them anymore but I think then 
one of the biggest things that I find is that one of the biggest hurdles that I had was I struggled to get any support for my sexuality growing up. And I sit there and I think to myself sometimes, if on a form it had said, um, optional, what's your sexual orientation? Mm-hmm. I saw the OT um, for anxiety when I was about 12 years old. Uh, I would have written down uh, gay and they would have spoken to me about that and identified that actually, mm-hmm. you know, this kid is really struggling with their sexuality. Um, and yet still to this day, I think I know of maybe one or two places that have got sexual orientation on their occupational therapy mm-hmm. initial assessment. Um, and I think that that's a bit ridiculous. Yeah. I think, you know, and in OT, uh, I've spoken to some OTs about it and I've been told, well, no, because then you're forcing someone to out themselves. And I was like, no, you're giving them the option to say, yeah. I'm gay or I'm not gay. And actually the more positive experiences that they have of disclosing their sexual and gender identity, the more likely they are of having better resilience, better coping strategies, and knowing that there are more safe spaces out there. Um, you know, I did my research on that. That was my uh, you know what I did my research project on and yet but still to this day there's such a lack of evidence base in this area you're giving somebody an option I think that's the the issue it's it's just like if you have race as a category um, in in your intake paperwork some people might choose not to fill it out um, but if you aren't asking those questions you are ignoring a very important part of somebody's identity that is who they are yeah. and you know we we touched on this earlier for you um just like you mentioned there there are two sides to it it's um the western side um where between um your sexuality and your race um you felt excluded and then on the family side in our culture usually um if you know, if you're not that um, the standard heterosexual, which is kind of like the white norm, right? That that's what's um, more commonly acceptable in South Asian culture. You have to hide that part of you. Um, and you know, thank you for for sharing with us. It, that that's that's tough. Not only did you um, did you not feel supported on the Western side, but you lost part of who you are with your family as well by opening up, you know, to who you are. Yeah. So yeah. it's like that whole thing of, yeah. you know, when, when you talk about it like that and you talk about it to friends, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or people or anybody, you know, I, I'm open about it. I will discuss right. it because I want to educate people that actually they grew up in a culture and a society where being different was wrong. Mm-hmm. And that, Experience that themselves so anything that's different from what's an acceptable norm is wrong right and when people turn around and they say oh no family should react like that or blah 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 and this like that and actually why couldn't you just oh you know well you're safe here and things like I'm just like no that that's the wrong response right you know the right response is for you to sit and listen and for you Mm -hmm. to 
which are actually as a society we've got a long way to come right and what can we do to start working towards that and one of the things we can do is not be forcing people of different cultures to accept and have to change the very fundamentals that make up their culture um i've i've had people say oh you must be so glad that you know you you're you've escaped all of that side and i was like what do you mean escaped that culture is part of me right the whole homophobia and everything was actually did not exist homophobia and transphobia did not exist in the middle east because let's go back million millennia you know um look at all the carvings on mogul uh, you know in mogul palaces and pre um british empire they are books and carvings which have which actually celebrate transgender and homosexual individuals um but yet the context of homosexual homophobia and transphobia came from uh, religion and yeah. um, British Empire yeah. as a form of control. Yeah. Um, because it did not fit with those views. Right. Yeah. Homophobia, ableism, um, racism, yeah. they all fall into that category of going against that white dominant norm or white, you know, call it what it is, white supremacy. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, And it all comes down to that of actually, don't ask me to adjust who I am. Don't tell me that me being passionate is overconfident um, because actually how passion is displayed from Eastern culture is completely different to how passion is displayed in Western culture. Um, And you know, people, when they say, oh, calm down, you're getting a bit too excited or whatever. I'm like, no, this isn't being too excited. This is being happy and positive and not um, stereotypically British restrained um, because that's what is acceptable in the society. So we have to, I just want to bring just before we wind up I just want to bring one point back which is for all clinicians of color uh, different gender different sexuality and who are Caucasian if you're hearing this and you're thinking about what can I do to improve my practice or how do I want to practice I want you to think about two things what does person-centered care mean to you and how are you defining what's meaningful to you reflect on that for yourself and reflect on your experiences to see was that conversation meaningful that i had with that doctor was that meaningful to me did it account or with that ot or with that speech and language therapist or that physical therapist um And actually, was it a holistic representation of who I am, where I'm from, and what I am? And when you're thinking about discussing what occupation is, 
And actually, in terms of sexuality, I want to put this out there. Disclosure or coming out is a very meaningful occupation. If you have to do something every single day, whether it's in a small way or a big way, and you it's part of who you are, and without being able to be who you are, you cannot meaningfully engage in any activities of your daily living, then that is a meaningful occupation to that person. Engaging in those discussions at work, for one example, when you're saying, oh, I was at the park with my wife this weekend and we went for a walk and it was really nice. What did you get up to this weekend? I don't want to have to say, oh, I went for a walk with my other half or my partner. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to say, yeah, I went for a walk with my husband mm-hmm. and it was great. In that one sentence, I just come out to you as gay, but I've done it by trying to make it more normal unacceptable because society tells me that it's not normal unacceptable so make it so that and that in itself is a meaningful part of me and it's a meaningful occupation so think about those things when you are reflecting on your practice on the practice of others and when you're looking at how can I improve my practice to be more inclusive and hopefully that will help you be able to think about those things. Um, it's what I do anyway, um, because there's cultures that I don't know much about and I go out and learn about them. And I think I was fortunate enough to be able to travel um, and learn about those cultures by immersing myself in them. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Those those are really, really good considerations. And it definitely brings back all of the points um, that that we covered in, you know, being colorblind is not helping anybody. Ignoring somebody's sexuality is not helping anybody. If you truly want to be inclusive, then you have to be curious and make space for somebody to share their identities and feel comfortable. Um, And so you do have to check those microaggressions, really kind of check your biases um, and check how you're stating things so that somebody doesn't feel like they have to cater to what you believe is acceptable and how they're sharing their life. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I, I really appreciate appreciate having this conversation and, you know, thank you for, um, getting into really personal aspects of, of your life. Um, I wanted to just share my information. If anybody wants to get in touch, if you have questions, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, um, you can find me at otbayarea.com. Um, please like and um, comment if you have any questions or feedback for us. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate you inviting me and reaching out. And it's been quite enjoyable and interesting to hear from your perspective as well. And that things across the, as they say in Britain, across the pond are not so different. Yeah. Unfortunately, they're they're not. We've got a lot of progress to to reach towards together.